Good evening. Please open your Bibles to the book of Acts 17, beginning verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have come here now, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. And God bless the reading and preaching of his word tonight. The events that are described in our passage put Paul at well along on his second missionary journey. He and Barnabas had had a strong disagreement about a co-worker named John Mark and whether John Mark would travel with them. The result of their conflict was an end of their work together, but as we find in other places in the New Testament, not their love and respect for each other. Paul has taken Silas and gone into Syria and then north and east into Cilicia, strengthening the church. They pass through the city of Derby and then the city of Lystra, and at Lystra he meets a young man named Timothy, who becomes part of his mission team. From there, they travel to Phrygia and to Galatia, Roman provinces in what we would know today as central Turkey. At Troas, on the far northwest coast of modern Turkey, Paul has a vision, a vision of a man from Macedonia. And the man speaks to Paul in his vision and asks him to come to Macedonia Come over and help us, he pleads with Paul. And that's what Paul does. The first stop that Paul and his co-workers make is in the Roman military colony of Philippi. And in Philippi, they teach the gospel to a woman named Lydia, who is a merchant, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. They also convert the Philippian city jailer and establish the church. After dealing with the Philippian magistrates who wrongfully beat them and imprisoned them, Paul goes on to the city of Thessalonica. There he goes to the synagogue and he preaches the gospel. Luke tells us that some Jewish people and a great number of God-fearing Greeks become Christians. But the sad reality is that most of the Jews in the synagogue not only reject the gospel, but out of jealousy incite a riot. Jason and some of the other brethren are taken before the city magistrate where they are blamed for starting the disturbance. 
The magistrate requires that they pay a security deposit before he will release them. So Paul and Silas find themselves on the road again. They leave Thessalonica and travel to the next town, which is the city of Berea. This evening, I want us to think about Paul's work in Berea, the Bereans' attitude toward the gospel, and how they reacted to the gospel that Paul preached. I think we're going to find that their attitudes and their actions need to be the pattern for ours. Paul's work in Berea is described in verses 10 through 15 of chapter 17, so please read along. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who accompanied Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Christians in Thessalonica were concerned about Paul's safety. They thought that his life was in danger, and so the best thing for them, for him was to leave the city. Think about them saying goodbye. There must have been heavy hearts among the members of the congregation to see him go. After all, he had taught them the gospel. And his heart must have been heavy because he knew that he was leaving new Christians in a hostile community with a number of enemies to oppose them. As Paul sets out from Thessalonica, he has a two-day journey ahead of him by foot. He arrives in Berea, and he goes right to work. He goes straight to the synagogue. He doesn't take any time for rest. He doesn't find look for solitude to get over his discouragement. I think if I'd been through the things that Paul wanted, I would be looking for a Holiday Express Inn and a few days of R&R. How about you? But that's not Paul. He heads to the synagogue immediately. His reception in the synagogue in Berea is very different from his reception in the synagogue in Philippi and Thessalonica. The Bereans, Luke tells us, were of a more noble character. They were people who were more nobly minded. We might also say that they were people who were fair-minded. They are willing to give Paul a hearing. So he preaches during the synagogue service, and they listen carefully to all that he has to say. When they heard him, they began to study the scriptures. They wanted to know the truth of what Paul was preaching. Their study of the scripture led at least some of them to the conclusion that what Paul was speaking was true, that his message was true. And many come to obedient faith as a result of his preaching and their study. And further, as a result of their eagerness to search the scriptures, several prominent, well-to-do, high-standing Greek women also come to faith, as well as a number of Greek men. 
So the gospel continues to advance and another congregation is established. One of the themes in the book of Acts is that nothing can stop the gospel. It just keeps moving and it moves over obstacle after obstacle, continues to spread, churches continue to be established, and that's what we see here in chapter 17. But unfortunately, trouble isn't too far behind Paul. I don't know if it ever was very far behind him. Word gets back to Thessalonica to the Jews who had opposed Paul there and took part in the riot against him. What I want us to notice is what it says here in verse 13. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. This is really important for our understanding of the passage. This understand in our understanding of this part of Acts. Notice that Paul, that Luke does not say that word got to Thessalonica that they they knew that Paul was preaching. Doesn't say that, does it? Look at the passage again. Look at verse 13. Luke writes, they heard that Paul was preaching the word of God. That's what gets back to Thessalonica. And we might think that's an insignificant detail, but it's really very important. Because this is Luke's way of saying that the conflict that Paul is encountering, whether it's in Philippi or Thessalonica or wherever it is, is not between him and the Jews. It's between the Jews and the word of God. It is a conflict that is between them and God, ultimately. It is the word of God that is advancing and teaching more and more. Well, on hearing this, some of the Jews in Thessalonica make the two-day journey to Berea, and they go with the intention of starting the same kind of trouble that they started at home. They arrive, they begin to agitate the crowd. Perhaps another riot is going to begin. But before that happens, the Berean brethren send Paul on his way. They get him out of town, leaving Silas and Timothy with the young church. A few of the Bereans make the 200-mile journey with Paul from Athens, from Berea to Athens, and then return taking instructions to Silas and Timothy to join Paul. And so a new phase of Paul's work begins as he begins to preach the gospel in Athens. I want us to think about verse 11 more closely. Now, the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. The NIV says the Berean Jews were of more noble character than the Jews of Thessalonica. Several translations simply say they were more noble. The Jerusalem Bible says that they were more open-minded, and that captures a little bit more of the words that are here. For the idea is not only that they had good hearts, that they were, were pleasant people, but they had open hearts. They didn't approach life with fear and distrust of something that was new. That doesn't mean that they simply bought everything they heard, that they believed everything that was told them, But it does mean that they had a willingness of heart to give someone a chance to get their case out, to be heard. And that's what gives Paul his opportunity to state his case and to begin to preach the gospel 
in that city. Now, when they heard Paul preach the gospel, they received the word as God's word, even though it was new to them. And Luke stresses how they heard it. They, they heard it with eagerness, with great eagerness. There is a determined zeal in the way they listen to Paul. They hear these sermons and they hear the message that he has. And the way that we might say it is that they hang on his every word. They want to hear more. They are excited by the good news that he is bringing them. But again, being open and excited does not mean that just because Paul said it, they believed it. These people are not going to be taken in. These people are not going to be led astray. Their eagerness is controlled by a greater desire, and that greater desire is to know whether Paul's message is true. And the only way they know how to measure whether it is true, to test whether it's true, is to turn to the Scriptures. And so in their eagerness to hear Paul, to hear his message, they meet with him daily, and then daily they study their Bibles. Did the Word of God verify Paul's message? Did it verify, did it uphold the gospel he was preaching to them? That is what they were determined to know. So one important question here to ask here is, how did they search the Scriptures? And how did they test Paul's message? How did they determine whether it was true or not according to the Scriptures? Well, in our verses, Luke does not record the sermon that Paul preached in the Berean synagogue. But he does record one that Paul preached in Antioch of Pisidia, where he also preached in the synagogue. It's recorded in Acts 13, and you might want to turn there. Since Luke only records one such sermon in a synagogue, and since he tells us that Paul repeatedly preached in synagogues, that that was his regular habit, that that was his regular plan, Luke is telling us that this synagogue sermon in Antioch is Paul's typical sermon. This is not just how he preached that day in Antioch. But Luke wants us to understand that when he had the opportunity to preach in the synagogue, this was how he did it. These were the things that he addressed. These were the things that he talked about. These were the scriptures that he referred to. So one way that we can figure out what the Bereans looked at is that we can look at the Antioch sermon and see what Paul preached. And it's found in chapter 13, verse 16 through 41. If you look through the sermon, you'll notice in verse 16 to 25 that Paul's beginning point is to tell the story of God's dealing with his people Israel. He reviews history with them. He reviews their history. He reviews what they should know by heart as Jewish people. But then in verse 26 through 30, he changes the subject just a little bit. And he shows them how this history that they all share in common leads up to Jesus. And that is where he tells the story of Jesus. And then finally, Paul connects all of this to the people in the synagogue. He does this by using a number of quotations from the book of Psalms, from the prophet Isaiah, and from the prophet Habakkuk. And that's what we find in 31 to 41. So if Paul's sermon in Berea was like this, and I believe that it was, the Bereans really would have had a lot of work in front of them. 
There was a lot for them to examine and a lot for them to verify. They could have verified what Paul said about the history of God's dealings with Israel. That was something they had been taught since they were children. There would have been people who were learned in the scriptures who would know such things. There would be manuscripts of the Bible. They could check it out. Not only that, but they could have read the prophets and what they said about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. They could have read those scriptures and compared them to what Paul was telling them. And more than that, they could have taken Paul's quotations and checked those out. They could have looked at Psalms. Was he quoting accurately from the Psalms? Is that what the Psalms said? They could have looked at Isaiah. Is what Paul says Isaiah said what Isaiah really said? And what about the words from Habakkuk? Are those really Habakkuk's words? You see, they could have done a very thorough study of Paul's message in light of Scripture, and Luke tells us that that's exactly what they did. This diligent, open-hearted, good-hearted listening to Paul and searching of the Scriptures led them to faith and obedience. They accepted Paul's message and they verified it by the scriptures. And it's because it was what they found in the scriptures that they came to faith and obedience. I hope we're like the noble Bereans. I hope that as Christian people, as a congregation, that, that we're open-minded and fair-minded, that there is an eagerness deep in our hearts to hear the word of God but also faithful to measure everything by the Word of God. It really doesn't matter in the greater scheme of things whether a preacher is loved or trusted, and it really doesn't matter if he has a big reputation in the brotherhood. It really doesn't matter that in churches of Christ we have always believed something a certain way for a long time. And it really does not matter that we've done something in a particular way for a long period of time. It does not matter what the denominations do or teach. And it doesn't matter what the world does and what the world thinks. Such things must never be allowed to dictate what we believe and what we do in the exercise of our faith. The only thing that matters the only thing that matters is what does the Bible say? And maybe you haven't heard that said by me before, or maybe you haven't heard that in the pulpit in a long time, but that's where our brethren have stood throughout the years. Not that that validates it, but, but that's been our concern. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible tell us about this? Our faithfulness to God should lead us to test everything that we hear against the Word of God. If we find something that is the Word of God, then we should receive it. We should seek to believe it and to obey it. But if what we hear is not the Word of God, if it's not faithful to the Word, then we should reject it. We should not accept it. But how can we do that? How can we do such a thing? Well, what strikes me about all of this is that the means available to the Bereans are still available to us. What they did is still possible for us to do. 
we can ask, does the message we hear tell the truth of Scripture? When we put the message that we hear or the Sunday school lesson or the bulletin article or, or whatever it is that we might be looking at, when we put it beside Scripture, how do they compare? Is it teaching the truth? Is it teaching the Scriptures? And then we can ask, are the conclusions being drawn correct conclusions? Maybe they seem on the surface to be saying what Scripture says, but are their conclusions correct? If the Scriptures are quoted, are they quoted accurately? Sometimes people quote the Scriptures, but the words don't really match up with what the Scriptures say. And not only in terms of the words, but also in terms of the context. I think one of the most famous examples that I can think of comes from the early 1900s in the women's temperance movement. Their, their slogan was, do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. That's Bible. It's found in the book of Colossians in chapter 3. But if you read chapter 3, the Apostle Paul isn't using that as a motto. He isn't saying that's how you should live. He's giving that as an example of the wrong kind of spirituality. Read, I guess it's chapter 2, not chapter 3. They just took the words that fit, but they didn't check the context for what they meant. We can also ask ourselves whether a message or a lesson is accurate or correct as far as the whole of Scripture is concerned. Does this really fit with what all the Bible says? on this given subject. You know, at one time, we had a tradition in the church that has really fallen by the wayside. And the tradition was that if somebody was preaching or teaching or somehow leading the congregation, and they quoted from the scriptures and what they said was wrong, was not correct, they, they missed the words in some way, the men in the congregation would speak up. They would say something. They would stop him. They would say, this isn't right or it should have read this way. But we don't do that anymore. I didn't do it on purpose this morning. But when I read 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 24, I made a mistake with the word. Nobody said anything. Nobody was paying that close attention. And again, I didn't do it on purpose, but as I read part of this this evening, I also made a mistake in the order of the words. And maybe those aren't important. Maybe those don't seem like big issues. But how can you know that something is right if you're not paying attention? And how can you correct it? And why just let things go? And I'm not saying let's turn the service into some kind of... uh you know, um, conversation where everybody's questioning and challenging that. What I'm trying to say is how important it is to us to be a people of the book. How important it is to us to know what the scriptures say. And simply hold up everyone who preaches and teaches or has anything to do with the Lord's church, hold them up to that standard. It doesn't matter anything except that what they preach and teach is what the word preaches and teaches. We ask, uh, we can ask whether God really wants us to do something or believe something in the light of the whole Bible. As we study the Bible for ourselves, we need to be careful about how we handle it.
We need to remember things like the fact that the Bible was written directly to Israel and to the early church, and it is written to us through them. We, we hear them, and we have to understand what was said to them. We need to remember that the Bible can't mean something today that it could not have meant to its, its first original readers. If you look at Revelation 9, you have the description of the locusts coming out of the pit. It's a fearsome description. And premillennialists from Dallas Theological Seminary want us to believe that those are United States Army Cobra attack helicopters. And I suppose in the, you know, in the wilds of imagination, you can sort of see the description as a description of those things. But in the first century, nobody knew what a helicopter was. Nobody knew what the United States was. So it wouldn't have meant that to them. And what I'm trying to say here is if it couldn't have meant something to them, then it can't mean that to us. That's not the meaning that we can get from this. We need to remember that when our situation is life, in life is just like theirs in the first century, we're on safe ground to say that it applies to us. Here's where we think about command and example and inference. And when our situations are not the same, is there an eternal principle? Is there an eternal lesson that's being taught that, that we can't apply? Studying the Bible requires careful reading Careful reading over and over again. There are times that we just have to sit and stare at the Word. There are times that we just have to sit and let the Word of God form in our hearts and our minds. We need to think about the kind of material that we're reading. Is it a gospel? Is it a psalm? Is it a parable? Is it a prayer? Is it a law? Because those are not all the same thing. They communicate in different ways. And what about the words? What do the words mean? And if a word is repeated more than once in a passage, what is the significance of that? And how does it hold together? Um, I know that in English class, nobody likes doing outlining exercises. But that's what I'm talking about, is learning how to think through a passage so that we know how it moves from point A to point B to point C. And then what about the context? immediate context, the verses immediately after and before, context of chapter and book and testament and Bible. If there are details that we don't understand, and there very well may be, maybe a good dictionary can help us. If there are phrases that are not clear, maybe a different translation or a concordance can help us. And there are any number of reference books and resources that can help us many of which are, are right downstairs, right beneath us. The church has a library, and it has a very large number of very helpful and useful resources. What I hope we'll take away from this, what I believe is most important in this, above all of the details that we've just been through, the Bereans, seems to me, had the right spirit. They had the right attitude. They had the right response. Paul's message. They wanted, they heard what he had to say. But they wanted to know if it's what the scriptures taught. What does the Bible say about these things it, that Paul was preaching? And, and I hope to make it personal. I hope you'll measure the sermons you hear from me that way. 
And, and I hope you will love the Lord and the Word and me and the congregation enough. But if you don't think I told you what the Word says, then we can talk about it. We can sit down with our Bibles and look at it, and maybe I can explain it, or maybe you could help me to understand where I missed it. It's really important. But I also want to encourage us with a thought that every one of us is capable of studying God's word for ourselves. I think one of the ways that the denominations sometimes influence us, at least a little bit, is the idea that the person in the pew isn't capable of understanding on their own. And I don't believe that. I have never believed that. I have never preached that. I'm grateful that I've had the training that I've had. I'm grateful for the teachers that I've had. But my firmest conviction is that every one of you are capable of reading God's word and understanding it and capable of talking about it. And I just hope that this encouragement, that you'll find this encouraging, that you can search the scriptures to determine whether these things are true that you can learn the truth that God has revealed in the Bible for yourself. And having learned it more than any, and more important than anything else, above everything else, that you can live it, that you can apply it to your life, to your faithfulness in following the Lord. The Bereans, what a great church that must have been. What a great attitude of heart in following the Lord. We're going to finish now with a song of encouragement. If someone in need of prayer tonight or needing to do God's will, won't you come while we stand and sing?